Joy, a phenomenon that transcends our circumstances, a mystery that confounds the enemies. When the world sees despair and doubt, our joy in Christ sings louder and louder, rising above the temporary and embracing the eternal. From prison cell to palace, from dungeon to deliverance, everything pales in comparison to knowing Christ and seeing His beauty. To be content in all things, to have peace in the midst of anxiety, to rejoice in suffering, the impossible made possible through Christ. Oh, to be found in Him, to be called a citizen of heaven, to be made righteous. How could we do anything but rejoice? All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? Good. Happy Sunday to you. I'm glad to hear it. Can we thank the worship team? They do such a great job. Just love the way they help us focus our attention. I know they woke you up a little bit this morning as we started out. That was pretty great. And uh, we're just really glad you're here today. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity. It's a privilege to get to be with you today. You join us in week three of a brand new series called Rejoice. We're looking in the book of Philippians. If you happen to bring a Bible today, we're actually going to be in Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, if you want to make your way there. Also in your Trinity this week, I forgot to bring my copy up, but you have a set of notes that will help you track with us today if you want to get those out. Those will also help you in your home group. Many of you are in home groups, and those are the prompts for your conversations. I know for our group, we've just gotten back in the rhythm a few weeks ago and just having great conversations, talking about this great news that comes, this news of joy that comes out of the book of Philippians. So hopefully that's uh, going to be your experience as well. Um, a couple of things as those things are happening, you're getting ready we talked a couple weeks ago, I think last week even, that we kind of have kind of changed the name of that space out on the plaza that we've called the Welcome Center, called the Start Here Booth. Well, there today, one of the things we're not letting go of is what we had done at a pretty good pace was every month, once a month, we would do a, a Start Here opportunity just for people who are relatively new to Trinity to get a chance to meet myself and some of our pastors and ministry directors. So that's going on today, right after this service. If you would just like to have a chance to get a name and a face. I would love that to get to know you a little bit. And I promise not to push a lot of stuff on you more than anything. I just like to make a connection. So our team will be out there. Myself will be out there after service. Look for us right there at the Start Here booth. And we'd love to meet you. All right. Well, so we said we're in this uh, the series called Rejoice. We will see today in just some, a really epic way a huge theme that I think Philippians covers better than probably anywhere else in the New Testament related to what it meant for Jesus to become one of us. And so among, among all the different big ideas in Philippians, though, we've said there's this idea that seems to be woven through it, that of the idea of joy. And we'll see it again today. In all eight of our messages, every single week, the word joy or rejoice or some form of that pops up into our passage. And there it is again today. And I just want you to see that. And for me, I've told you, as I get older, things are better when they're simpler for me. That just is the way that my mind is shifting, maybe because I can't remember as much. I don't know what it is, but I love the idea of simplicity. And so a definition that I've been using throughout the series for the word joy is grace recognized. Grace recognized, and that just helps me keep that in a simple way of going, that's the essence of where joy comes from. Remember we said joy is not dependent or based upon our circumstances. 
Because therefore, Paul would have absolutely no reason to write about joy or with joy because he's chained to a Roman guard. He, he writes this letter from jail, and this is a really tough season for him, but he keeps saying, hey, but I know what it is to experience joy. I am recognizing God's grace dripping all over my life. It sustains me and keeps me going. And so today we're going to talk about that idea of what completes his joy and the way that the Philippian Christians treat one another. So today, we're going to look at this big idea. Philippians 2 is well known for this idea of what we'd call the condensation of Jesus. What does it mean for him to stoop low to become one of us? And we'll see some great words to that effect. So let's look in your notes and on the screen. This is our now what idea for this week. Based on the selfless example of Jesus, value others' well-being ahead of your own. That's where we're going today. Look in your notes. Number one, as blessed members of God's family, live in unity with your brothers and sisters. As blessed members of God's family, live in unity with your brothers and sisters. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy, there's that word, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." Now, one thing that we've learned about is whenever we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what's it there for? Good job. So here's what we see. The end of chapter one, finish, if you were here with us last week, Paul was talking to the Philippian church and he's telling them, hey, you can do it. Hang in there because I understand the degree of persecution that you're going through for because you named the name of Jesus, because that's what I went through when I came and brought the gospel to Philippi. So with firsthand knowledge, he can tell them, hey, hang in there. I know it's tough, but you can do it. God gave me the grace to get through it. He's going to give it to you. That was the last thought. Then we transition here to chapter two. And and basically, in light of that reality of the persecution you're facing from the outside, be also well-equipped and thoughtful about the challenges you're facing from the inside. Listen to a way a commentary writer put it. He said, the previous sentence, the end of chapter one, emphasizes the need to stand firmly united for the gospel in the face of those who oppose the church. This sentence focuses, now this new one, focuses on the need to humbly, be humbly united with those who divide the church. Paul urges believers to be one so that they will be able to endure suffering caused by those outside the church and to heal the divisions caused by those inside the church. So that's where we're shifting gears. What was before, stand up underneath the persecution. Don't stop living consistently with the gospel because you're facing heat for it. Now he changes ideas and oh, by the way, you're facing some challenges in your midst from one another. Let's address that topic. And that's where he's gonna go. He begins this idea of uh, using a, a really interesting literary tool of a rhetorical question. So he's kind of asking these, or stating these rhetorical statements, and they borderline on sarcasm. So just know that as you're reading it. He's saying things like this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
well, yeah, he's transformed my life. If you have any comfort from his love, man, when everything is falling apart, it is the love of God that I know is holding on to me. If you have any tenderness and, or compassion, if you have this idea of how God has affected you, if that's translating emotively in your life or even to the point where you care for other people, so he's laying out this statement, which is basically, of course you do on every front. Paul's using this kind of logic to build a case that since they have known the goodness of God vertically, they're to treat each other differently horizontally. That kind of reality of what God has done for them should translate into how they treat one another. I was thinking of it this week, this week, this way. This is actually kind of the literary device that parents use and often don't even think about it. You've said things like this. If there's anything good about being in our house where there's a roof over your head and food on the table, if there's anything good about being in a family where you're loved and cared for when the bottom falls out, if there's anything good about the elation that you have felt on trips we've been on, as well as those times when you have a, a sense of compassion for your brother or sister, then get along. Okay? That's how it's happened in your house. I guarantee you that's how it's happened in mine. I'm building a case with my kids and I'm saying, hey, you have it good. Good things have come as a result of being in this family. Now act like it. Recognize that and be willing to give that away. That's kind of, I think, the tone in a kinder way. That's the tone that Paul is using. And to be honest, as you look at that, that's how it might go in our households. But look what the conclusion Paul's driving at. Make my joy complete. And how would that happen? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one of spirit and of one mind. So notice this, when Paul's using the phrase, when he writes the phrase, make my joy complete, that's an interesting verb, it's an imperative. And we've talked a lot about imperative verbs, how they catch our attention in unique ways. He's not making a suggestion, oh, I'd like you to get along. He's commanding, he's directing them with apostolic authority, hey, I want to get your attention. You're having splinters and division among you. There's no place for that in the family of God. Make my joy complete by being one, having unity. So this idea of completed joy, it means the idea of a joy that is filled up to its capacity. And that's a cool idea. I think a lot of this first four verses to me reminds me of a very parental approach. He seems like he's talking as their spiritual father, which by the way, he is, meaning he brought the gospel to this group of people. He has a unique role, plus he has apostolic authority as one of the apostles of Jesus. So he's kind of taking a different stance with them. He's not, you know, putting out your hands and slapping you, but he's saying, hey, I have a right to speak this clearly into your life. Listen to what I'm saying. And he takes his parental approach a little bit on this attitude and on this tact. And he says, make my joy complete by being in unity, living as one in this family. I think any parent in the room can relate to that. There is not much greater in your life that gives you joy when your children demonstrate love for one another, especially when they don't have to. Meaning when they're in your home and you're giving leadership, that's one thing. But even when they're grown, I know for me this week, it was a really cool thing. My son is a youth pastor up in Northern California and they're launching an evening service tonight, just like we have been working on the last four weeks. And as they're launching their service, 
He was telling me about it about a month ago, and I've been praying for him and his wife, Sky, and they're kind of taking point re- responsibility for the service. And then my daughter, Aaliyah, is a college student. She, her, her college campus is about a mile away from Jackson's church campus, so real close. And I remember we talked on the phone a week or two ago, and she said, Dad, I don't go to Jackson's church because I'm always in his shadow at school. I don't need that everywhere I go. But... When I heard about them starting this service, I really wanted to help. And so she's been involved at the ground floor level, organizationally and thought process. It's kind of funny. They're doing street tacos tonight as well. Probably not the same vendor since we're 400 miles away, but they're doing that to kick off their time like we are tonight. And I got to tell you, I told her, I said, Aaliyah, that makes a dad's heart so full to hear that you want to come alongside your brother and sister-in-law in this venture and offer any, any help you can provide to make that happen. So you've known that. You've known, quote, completed joy, that it really just brings your joy to the brim when you see your kids loving one another, especially when you're not making them do so. And that's just such a cool picture. When you think about this, I remember when I was young, thinking about it, my mom would tell us when we were kids, seven, eight, nine, just me and a younger brother. We'd say, mom, what do you want for your birthday? And she would kind of like this kind of weary look on her face, just get along. <laughs> and I'm like, that's like a dumb gift. You know I mean? I, let's, let's get you something or go pull a weed from the thing and bring it like a flower. I mean, something that demonstrates love. And now that I'm a dad totally get it. Totally get it. That is a huge gift. So look what he goes on to prescribe about this idea, what this fatherly relationship, what does it mean to be filled up with this joy? What are they going to do? It's when they're living in, walking in unity and like-mindedness and in love towards one another. We saw last week, and it's an interesting thing, that as an enemy, as it were, those persecuting the church from the outside are increasing the heat and making it hard for them as believers to function well and meet well in Philippi. What's interesting is Paul's even saying maybe the greater enemy is actually inside your doors. It's you and the way that you are living in division rather than in unity one another. Now, if you are someone who's ever been a part of an organization where there's been extreme discord and disunity, Maybe it was at a company that you worked at. Maybe it was a club you belonged to and might have even been at a church. You know that when you've walked in a season of that kind of division, you know I never want to go back there again. It is a rough way to live when people that you're kind of by necessity connected to, you have a sense of maybe not trusting them or a sense of just the fact that we're not working off the same page. Now, I know that Trinity went through a really tough season a few years ago, and some of those things were some of the things that were challenges during this time, but I love that we're looking at this passage today, because even as Trinity went through that season, I'm sure it was passages like these that came to mind or were even spoken from this stage that were reminding us as a group to be a people who would say, you know what, unity is something that is essential if we're going to fulfill the mission that Jesus has left us. We need to find a way to preserve the unity that we have because the Spirit of God resides in us. And Paul knew that's why he was making uh, this, bringing this concern up about the rising division they were having, and he exerted apostolic authority. 
Now, we don't have the Apostle Paul to write us a letter today and tell us, hey, you need to live with this extreme unity because of how God has loved you and the fact that you do have his very spirit in you. But we don't need Paul to write us that letter because he already did. This letter to the Philippians is just as binding and just as true for us 2,000 years later as it was for them at that time. And that's why for me, one of the things I wanted to do, you know, over the last few weeks, I've been kind of dripping out some of our um, core values that our pastoral staff and ministry directors have come up with. And this is one that applies to that today, related to the authority and the transformative power of the, of the word of God. Take a look at the screen or in your notes. This is one of our core values. The Bible is God's story given to transform you and to be an authority in your life. We labored hard over the wording of all of these core values, but I love how this one turned out, that we want people to understand that the Bible is God's story. God is the one who is behind it. He's the one who wrote it. It's what he has revealed to us of what we can know of him. But it's also, it was given to you with purpose to be transformative in your life, meaning not just things on a page to know in your head, but a catalyst for change. It's a change agent but also given to you as an authority. So no matter how you may think or feel on a certain issue, I know for me, I always want to keep coming back to, if the word of God says it, that's where I need to get underneath. Even when it's something I might not agree with in that moment, even when it's something very difficult, God's word gets to speak authoritatively in my life. And that's a huge thing that we want to keep in front of us. Paul goes on to mention not only what he wants them to be about, but also what he tells them to steer clear from. He says, among you, there should be no selfish ambition. Don't do anything from that motivation or vain conceit. Last week, we saw that word selfish ambition, and we basically said it simply means to do what's best for you, no matter who it hurts in the process. Do what's best for you. Look out for number one, no matter who gets hurt in the process. Paul says, don't ever let that be your motive for why you do what you do. And then he says, or out of vain conceit. I don't know about you, but I've not had a conversation recently where I said, oh, be careful of that person. They're full of vain conceit, right? It's just not a phrase we use all the time, but it basically means empty glory or exaggerated self-worth. That's kind of interesting, or self-evaluation, exaggerated self-evaluation. So that's kind of a powerful statement. It's basically ego. Don't do what you do out of taking care of yourself no matter what the cost or out of ego. He goes on to tell them that out of humility, though, instead, a whole different posture, they should value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Look in your notes. That word humility can be defined as an inside-out virtue. I like this definition, an inside-out virtue produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord, not to one another. This brings behavior into alignment with this inner revelation to keep one from being self-exalting. See, sometimes we have a really poor view in the church of the word humility. We think it just kind of means walk around with your face dragging on the ground. I'm nothing. I'm dirt. You know, this whole thing. That's not biblical humility at all. A friend between services reminded me a great C.S. Lewis quote. Humility is not thinking. Let me make sure I get it right. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Get the difference? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Not being so enthralled with my well-being, but like this passage is saying, being instead thoughtful of the well-being of others. So Paul's saying, don't let that be your posture, your attitude. 
Instead, value the well-being of others ahead of what you want. This is really challenging for us to do because we are very self-interest-centered. At at our core, we want what we want. And that makes us very challenging. And that means that we're living in a very counter-fleshly way, counter-cultural way, when we take the way of Jesus. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about there's probably one area in my life and my, my circumstances or my relationships where I actually see people very consistently live with this posture, meaning putting the needs, not being full of ego or I want what I want, but putting the needs of other people ahead of themselves. And you know where I thought of it? It's interesting. It doubles back to what we've said earlier. It's a parenting idea. Parents, especially of dependent children, are constantly putting their children's needs ahead of their own so that their children are well taken care of. And they don't, they don't do it with needing um, a pat on the back or needing someone to congratulate them. They just consistently say, you know what, I want what's best for you. It's gonna be exhausting to me, but I'm gonna do it with a happy heart because I care deeply about you and you need it. Now, for those of you who are raising two-year-olds right now, this is a really scary thought because you're saying, I'm exhausted with my two-year-old. I can't imagine thinking everyone around me needs the attention like my child needs. Putting their needs ahead of my own, I don't know if I'm going to have enough gas left in the tank. And I would say this, this, and I get that, I get that tension. I would say this is a great way to think of, God, I don't know how I'm going to continue to give myself away to people. But I'm going to trust that in the midst of doing so, that you are going to fill me up, whether it be by other people who also want to meet needs in my life or whether it be just the power of your indwelling spirit that continues to give me strength and encouragement. But I would say I realize why there's a fear to want to give ourselves away to this degree because we're afraid there won't be enough left for us. And I want to encourage you, take these words to heart and say, God, I want to trust you that there's going to be enough for me if I move forward in believing you in this. One of the things I think that's great about Trinity Church, I think this is one of many examples of things that we do well. I think we do care for one another well. We do put the needs of others in front of ourselves. And that really is that continues to become more and more of our ethos, more and more of our reputation. These words are going to be powerful. God, help me not live with an attitude that says me over everyone else, but instead others before me. That's a posture I want to have. So in light of that, that's why we chose these verses to memorize. If you're new with us today, we've been memorizing verses in each of our passages throughout the book of Philippians, and I told you they were going to get longer. Here we go. Put up on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. Read it with me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so maybe a way to boil it down is this. If we want a good example of what not to do, I would encourage you today, don't have the attitude of Peppa Pig. Take a look. What's wrong, Peppa? I can't whistle, but everybody else can. Never mind. I'm making cookies. Would you like to lick the spoon? No, thank you, Mummy. Can I ring Susie's sheep instead? Okay, Peppa. Hello, Mrs. Pig. Hello, Mrs. Sheep. Can Peppa talk to Susie, please? Hello, Susie. (laughs) Hello, Peppa. What are you doing? I'm learning to whistle, but I can't do it yet. Hmm. 
Hmm, that sounds hard. It's impossible. Uh, can you whistle, Susie? No. <laughs> oh, good. I mean, that's sad if you can't whistle. But good, because I can't whistle. What's whistling anyway? You put your lips together and blow. Like this. <whistles> Hello, Peppa? So, you're welcome. My daughter showed me that clip about a year ago, and I thought, I'm going to get Peppa Pig into our service at some point. <laughs> Makes me belly laugh every time I see it. I love it so much. So, for those of you who don't know Peppa Pig, you've just been introduced to a new genre of children's animation and uh, entertainment. For the rest of you, you already knew it was great. All right, number two in your notes. Here's what we want to see. For Jesus, no degree of selflessness for you was too much. For Jesus, no degree of selflessness for you was too much. Philippians 2 verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I told you today we were going to see one of the most powerful, um, just uh, short, abbreviated versions of the nature of the God-man Jesus. And Philippians 2 unwraps this for us. Now, I want you to see that Paul shifts gears on two fronts. Number one, he shifts gears related to literary tools. He started with rhetorical statements or rhetorical questions. Now he's going to shift gears. If you notice in your Bible, the way the words were on the, the page looked a little different. This is a poem. Paul's writing a poem of the condescension of Jesus and what it took for him to take, put on flesh and become one of us. So number one, he shifts gears related to his style of writing, but then secondly, what he also does is he begins to say, hey, I have told you as kind of your father in the faith with big A apostolic authority, you need to love each other, put each other ahead of yourself. But in case you don't think that's enough, let me show you the way Jesus has loved you. Let me show you the way that Jesus put everyone in front of him in order for him putting on flesh and ultimately taking him to the cross. So it's powerful where he goes with this attitude and how he's calling them to have the same attitude and actions as Jesus did. Paul says that they should have the same mindset of Christ. That's the third time he's used that word in what we've read just today alone. It's, these words are all about have the same attitude, the same approach, the same mindset that others around you should have and live in unity. And he goes on to write these poetic words of how Jesus has modeled humility, not just preached about it, he showed it. Paul begins by teaching that Jesus' nature is not like God's, but it is God's. G-O-D apostrophe S, meaning Jesus is one and the same with the Father related to his essence, related to his divinity. There are a lot of ideas today, 2,000 years later, and by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. The early church struggled and they looked to Philippians 2 for help to understand what is the nature of who Jesus was. And there's a lot of religions today that would put forth that Jesus was a great teacher, some that would say that he was a creation of God, unique from all created beings, but still not God. But we read Philippians 2 and we read, Jesus was by very nature, continues to be today, 
divine. He is the God-man. So his essence comes into the statement here that he is absolutely of the nature of the same nature of God. He has always existed and will continue to exist throughout all eternity as very God, even though he stepped into our world with his humanity. Notice that Paul says he didn't hold on to his divinity, though, in such a way that it would be to his own advantage. Some of you have been familiar with Philippians 2 from a different translation, and it says that he, he uh, allowed itself not to be grasped. He didn't hold on tightly. What that word means is to seize, especially by an open display of force. So meaning Jesus didn't hold tight to his divinity and all that came from being the second member of the Godhead, but he released his hold on what was rightfully his in order to made him, the fact that he made himself nothing by taking on the role of a servant being made in human likeness. That phrase, he made himself nothing, in other translations has been stated is that he, um, op- he emptied himself. And, and the reason I have a bit of a problem with that, he emptied himself might give us the connotation of that becoming Jesus, he emptied himself of his divinity. That's not at all what this passage teaches. That phrase emptied himself, maybe is a better way of saying it, is that he became valueless. The valued became valueless. The creator of the universe becomes its, his creation, takes on human flesh like ours, and that, that idea, to me, really is connected, really is consistent with what Philippians 2 is teaching. It says that he took the role of a servant being made in human likeness. Look in your notes. For the second member of the Trinity to take on the flesh of humanity was like he was making himself nothing, of being perceived as valueless by taking on such a base nature. Now, for all the human beings in the room today, you might feel a bit slighted. Really, being human is valueless in in all these terms, if that's what this is meaning. Well, let's talk about a couple things we know. Number one, we know that God values humanity over and above every other thing in the created order. And the biggest reason we know that is we are the only beings in all of the creation story that are actually given this moniker of being made in the image of God. Nothing else that exists has that same concept of being image bearers like you and I are. So we know that we are highly valued by God on all kinds of fronts. But what we also know is this, what it really screams is it helps us understand the incredible drop from what it means to be God to what it means to be one of us, to be one of those created beings There there is no comparison. Think of it this way. It's as though someone painted a masterpiece. And in painting this valuable piece of, of art, this painting, it was highly esteemed so much that it would sell for millions in different types of auctions. But imagine something, not something happened to the painting. It looked the same, but something about its reputation or its value plummeted. And now you can buy it for a buck at the thrift store. That's the kind of valueless we're talking about. That's something that was highly esteemed because of his own will, because of his own condescension, because of his own humility. He puts himself in a position to take on flesh and to be one of us. That's what this passage is talking about. It's truly impressive. 
And Paul goes on, he says, not just taking on flesh, but became obedient to his father to the point of allowing mere created beings to kill him. Look in your notes. There is no degree of humiliation that Jesus wasn't willing to stoop to in order to provide the atonement that was needed to make you right with God. There was no degree of humiliation that Jesus wasn't willing to stoop to in order to make you right with God. This poem is right in understanding. It's a great hymn of praise. God not only took on flesh, becoming humanity like us, but did so to save us by dying for us in our place. The only way human in God's economy, the only way humans could be redeemed was by a perfect human being dying in their place. His name is Jesus. And I want you to see something today that I think we surface once in a while, but I want you to hear it with clarity today. This is why God hates religion. Religion says that if I just do enough in the scales of my life, very few religious people even think they're completely right and perfect, but if I can just do enough to outweigh the bad, I'll become acceptable to God. God says there is no degree of do-gooding that you can do to rightly earn being right with me because I've already gone ahead of you providing my son in your place. And Jesus, the God-man who was stained for us, became that which made us able to be unblemished before God. So the gospel is so important to us that we never lose sight of it and that when we see that people around us or even dare say we start to think religiously rather than gospel-centric, realize it's a stench in the nostrils of God, that we somehow try to earn something from him that he's already lovingly given us. He doesn't need you to do something to be good enough to be right with him. All he needs you to do is to respond appropriately. God, I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I have lived life on my terms. I have done things that simply are so out of line with your design, as has every human being on the planet. I admit my humanity and I admit my sin. But I believe I believe that you sent Jesus, the God-man, to do exactly what this passage says. Now, he did take on flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. I believe that Jesus is the only Savior available. So I choose. I choose to say, rather than putting my hope, my future, my confidence in what I can do to somehow merit or earn something from you, I'm simply going to rely on what Jesus has already accomplished in my place. That's the gospel, and that's the response God's looking for. That's what he lays before you today and says, would you admit, would you believe, would you choose? That's where it begins. That's where a right relationship with God starts from. Paul, in essence, is saying that you should value others above yourselves, not just because he told you to do so, but because Jesus showed you how. Finally today, number three in your notes, exaltation follows humiliation. Exaltation follows humiliation. Chapter two, verse nine. Therefore, God exalted him, exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says the word therefore again. Therefore, in light of the way that Jesus was humiliated for you, God exalted him. God made much of him, giving him a name unparalleled to anyone else. And this great stature and this great name, it isn't just something God honors him with, but every single being that is subject to God will honor the son. I remember as a kid hearing this phrase um, that I didn't, I didn't really understand then, but I really understand now and really understand from this passage today. They said this, they said, when it comes to Jesus, you're going to bow your knee one way or the other. You get to do it willingly in this life or you'll do it under compulsion and judgment in the next. And this verse says as much. I want us to rally around the reality today that Jesus is the hero that deserves our praise, our gratitude, and our attention. He has earned the right to be the one that we do look to and the one that we rightly praise. When we see sing songs of praise, you'll know we don't ever sing about anyone else like we sing about God. He is the reason, he's the focal point of our attention and because of not just who he is as creator, but what he's done to provide a savior, we sing loud because he deserves our praise and it's something that we want to be about. And look at this phrase, it says, not only is everyone going to bow the knee, both those things in heaven, I think that's a reference to the angelic host, both those things on earth, a reference to us, and even those under the earth, a reference to the demonic world. Every being will bow. But he says, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. Remember we said a couple weeks ago in Philippi, those were fighting words. This was in a culture where Caesar worship was rich and people would hold banners and signs and they'd cry out, Caesar is Lord. Paul says clearly, you've made a mistake. At least those in your culture have. Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. Listen to the way this commentary writer, he just nailed it. It's in your notes and on the screen. Jesus crucified on a Roman cross, not Caesar seated on a Roman throne is destined to receive universal acknowledgement that he alone is the sovereign Lord. I love the way that's worded. It's so powerful. All of this, all of Jesus' selfless humiliation accomplished reconciliation and subsequently exaltation that results in the glorification of the Father. The Father gets the credit because the Son's obedient. It's powerful. You just see this wonderful just circle of wonderful events. I want you to note that Paul's poem is borrowed from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Watch this, before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and, he, and will make their boast in him. I love that. It's powerful. So Paul's drawing from that when he writes us in Philippians 2. I just simply want to finish today. I want you to see that Jesus modeled for us something that we can, in, in, in like way, having the same attitude, that we can also live out, but also should expect that before exaltation comes humiliation. Look at this great quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. 
The cross we bear always precedes the crown we wear. I love that quote. So here's our now what statement this week. Based on the selfless example of Jesus, value others' well-being ahead of your own. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people, a people who are so impressed by this passage we've looked at today. Impressed because we want to make sure that we are not our own worst enemy by living lives divided by self-interest, but also, God, impressed by the fact of who Jesus is and how he lived for us. He took this nature, this posture of a servant, becoming obedient to death. God, would you give us the wherewithal, the mindset, and the strength this week to put others' interests ahead of our own? And God, would we... Would your church here called Trinity Church, would we develop more and more the reputation of being a people who would simply say, Jesus, we want to demonstrate your character and your nature towards one another and towards our world. And I pray that you would continue that growth, continue that reflection of who Jesus is well among us and in our community. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.